0: Support for a hot take comes from the Southern Environmental Law Center and its podcast, Broken Ground. In the latest season, listeners journey to Boxtown, Tennessee, a black neighborhood on the edge of Memphis, tucked into a bend of the Mississippi River. This community has a rich history and its residents cherish their deep ties to the land. Here, people young and old, hailing from all corners of the city and beyond, came together to fight the environmental injustices and threats to their quality of life posed by a controversial crude oil pipeline. In the course of telling this story, Broken Ground uncovers the stories of the community who pushed back against the project through grassroots organizing, legal advocacy, and unwavering determination. Find out how a crude oil pipeline went from imminent to canceled from the people on the front lines. Listen to their story in the latest season, now available wherever you get your podcasts, or stream it directly at brokengroundpodcast.org.
1: Hey, hotcakes. Welcome to Hot Take. I'm Mariana Euse-Hegler.
0: And I'm Amy Westervelt. Today, we are bringing you an episode we've been excited to plan for a long time. We... Mm -hmm. Put a call out a few weeks ago for folks' science questions for our friend, Dr. Kate Marvel, amazing NASA climate scientist, and mm-hmm. she came and answered all of them and more. Yep. So yeah, we're excited to bring you that. But first, we wanted to talk a little bit about what's been going on in the world of climate this week, starting with, of course, Hurricane Fiona in Puerto Rico. Ooh, Man. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Mm. It's... Um- Been pretty bad. So uh, some parts of Puerto Rico have gotten more than 22 inches of water and flash flooding. Um, The videos have been absolutely terrifying. And I remember in the lead up to this being like, oh, well, you know, Fiona wasn't quite a category one Mm. uh, when she passed over Puerto Rico. And to my mind, that meant not be terribly concerned. However, today's storms are not like yesterday's storm. A Category 1 in 2022 does not mean the same thing it meant in 2002. So while Fiona wasn't that much of strength, she had a lot of water.
0: Mm. And a lot of water can do
1: a lot of damage, especially if it just sits there, which is what I think Fiona did.
0: Yeah, I heard that like, I think yesterday was the first sunny day that they've had Mm. since, since the storm hit. So yeah, then, you know, it's just, it's sitting there. And of course... Puerto Rico was not in any way recovered from Maria, which was just five years ago. Exactly. You know, exactly. This, this is the thing that I think people need to remember too is that, you know, I mean, there are parts of New Orleans that still aren't recovered from Katrina. Am I right? All of New Orleans is not recovered from <laughs> Katrina. Right. Uh, right. No
1: joke. Yeah. No joke. I, and I was expand that to the gulf coast. Yeah. So, yeah, let's talk about Maria for a second. Maria was a category 5 storm mm-hmm. in uh September uh 2017. 17. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Took mm-hmm. 11 months for the power to return to the to the island. Uh yeah. it's the longest blackout in U- US history. Um and it killed 3,000 people.
0: Mm. It's terrible. A,
1: you know, yeah.
0: I, I reported a little bit there right after Maria, and then again just a couple years ago. So that would have been what, like three years later, and it was still very much recovering. You know, <laughs> a couple years ago, um, and and the folks that I talked to were like, you know, I don't like just talking about a lot of things that I think maybe people don't necessarily think of when they think of. A hurricane um, and and this long aftermath of it, you know, where people um, who were on dialysis, for example, couldn't plug in their machines, people who – I interviewed one woman whose father died because he was supposed to start cancer treatment like the day Maria hit and wasn't able to start it. And, you know, mm-hmm. died a few months later. So there's, there's a yeah. lot of stuff like that where it's like, you know, there's so many compounding effects that I think uh, it are easy to forget about if you're not there on the yeah. ground
1: yourself. yeah. About a year after Maria, I went um, to—it was was something being held at a conference, but it was kind of like a ceremony for Mm -hmm. people to just share their experiences around Maria. And, of course, it, you know, prioritized—I was there, but it was only— people with relationships to Puerto Rico that spoke. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. some of the things people were saying were things I hadn't even thought of, right? Like people had gotten their family members out and brought them to places like Chicago but they didn't under... their relatives didn't know that certain colors meant certain things in certain neighborhoods and wound up getting killed um, because of that. Or like one woman spoke about her father who was very proud Puerto Rican, had this very deep love and affection for his homeland and refused to leave.
2: Mm. And therefore
1: he lost his home. Mm-hmm. But he was too proud to go stay with anyone, and he was too proud to let her bring him back and did so it was just she was just like my father 's homeless, and i don 't know what to do about it because oh, he won 't let me help him and It was just like uh, so much heartbreak in the yeah. room, yeah, and so yeah, and so today we have fiona on on top, on top of top that, of mm-hmm. yeah, so
0: <laughs> and um, um, another thing too is that like when okay, so shortly after Maria, there was this big push in Puerto Rico to try to get distributed solar going because, you know, it was like, wow, this is the perfect place to do this, right? Like you can have solar panels on every roof because there's so much sun year round. There was a a big, you know, kind of push to get more and more people trained in installations and Mm -hmm. to figure out manufacturing locally, all of this stuff. And it was like, in the case of a hurricane, if you have your own setup with solar, like you can get back up and running way fast, you know, as opposed yes. to if you're reliant on, on a centralized fuels. grid that runs on fossil fuels and all of that stuff. Right. Cause a big part of it is, um, is this is like worn down infrastructure and transmission too. And, Instead of that, like there was such momentum behind it, but there was also momentum coming from somewhere else. And that was the gas industry in the United States, which at the time had a surplus of gas that they were hoping to dump on Puerto Rico. And they lobbied to like change a bunch of – there were laws that actually prohibited that. They lobbied to change those laws. They like, you know – they They did a whole bunch of uh, of groundwork in in Puerto Rico and and really like basically kind of got the country from instead of going from coal to solar, going from coal to to gas. And now here we are. and who knows how long it will take um for yeah. for the power to come back on. you know it's it's so yeah. like uh, yeah. It's really.
1: Yeah, there was a movement like that here in uh, New Orleans after Ida, and I don't think it succeeded either. So, yeah, right now up to 70, 750,000 people are without water in Puerto Rico. More than a million people are without power. And who knows how long that's, going to last, you know, because again the blackout after Maria lasted a really long time. Mm -hmm. Last I checked up to eight people are dead four of them in Puerto Rico Mm -hmm. so yeah, the storm also caused significant damage in the Dominican Republic and as of yesterday, Wednesday, uh, Fiona had strengthened to Category 4 and was barreling toward Bermuda, mm-hmm. although it's not forecast for a direct hit. It also hit uh, Turks and Caicos mm-hmm. um, in, in all of this. And it's projected to hit Nova Scotia later this week. Wow. And, you know, I don't quite know what to make of this, but it does not seem like storms are slowing down after they hit land. Mm-hmm. It seems like they are getting stronger after they hit land, which, like, yeah. a lot of the conventional wisdom that I I thought I had about hurricanes is starting to feel irrelevant.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I was wondering that. I was going to ask you because I'm, I'm pretty hurricane illiterate. Um, like, <laughs> is that normal for it to keep going for that long? Like, because I always think of it as like, okay, it hits land And then it peters out. But it's going to go all the way to Nova Scotia? What? I don't get
2: it.
1: It's not unusual for them to keep going. Mm -hmm. But it is unusual for them to keep getting stronger after they hit land. Usually, like, land weakens a hurricane. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so for it to go from, like, I, I don't know. I don't remember exactly what it was when it hit Puerto Rico. Maybe a one or a two. And then to a three. And then to a four. It's like, how are you... What's feeding you? Mm-hmm. And it's the hot waters in, in the ocean mm-hmm. and probably several other things that we should have asked Kate about, but we didn't. Sorry, y'all. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> <It's true. laughs> but also, we Kate's not a meteorologist. And- yeah, she's not a meteorologist,
0: yeah. so it's okay. She's yeah. not a meteorologist.
1: <laughs> um, so, Yeah. yeah. Um, But before we go any further on this, let's talk about some places people can donate to help people in Puerto Rico because do not give to the Red Cross folks.
0: That's right. That's right. We'll stick these links in the show notes, too. But there are a few places that we um, found, you know, from credible sources on the ground there. And those are Proyecto Matria. That's a women's rights organization, Taller Salud. That's the health workshop, also a women's health organization, and then a mutual aid network called Brigada Solidaria del Oeste. So those are three places that are doing the work on the ground, helping people get food, get water, get shelter, um, and and looking out for, for folks on the ground in Puerto Rico. And again, we'll yeah. stick those links in the show notes for you.
1: Yeah. Thank you. If you're able, please help people in their moment of need. Also, uh, big fun, meteorologists are tracking a tropical wave that they think is going to wind up as a storm in the Gulf. It's way too early to say how strong the storm would be, what part of the Gulf it might go to, or even if it happens at all. Like It's, it's early enough now that nothing could wind up happening, but judging from all of my Instagram feeds and, and the... Um, you know, the meteorologists that I follow and trust, this is one to keep an eye on. So if you mm-hmm. live in the Gulf Coast, now is a time to, you know, check all of your batteries, check your supply levels, uh, make sure your car is in evacuation shape, make sure your neighbors are good. Now is, now is the time to, like, check all of the pieces of your evacuation and your safety plans. So,
0: yeah, Ugh. take care it. of
1: yourselves, folks. I know. I hate it so much. I, I kind of don't let my car get below a half tank of gas throughout all of hurricane season. That's smart. Just in case. Yeah. Just in case. Yeah. Yeah. So that's everything going on in Hurricane Land. I also heard that there's a permitting forum bill that the text finally came out. Yes. Um I know it's crazy long, but I also know that you're an insane reader. Have you read it?
0: I have read it, and it is. Wow. Every bit as bad as everyone was fearing it would be. We're going to get into more analysis on that next week. But the headline is, you know, yes, they're trying to shove through the Mountain Valley pipeline. Um, There's a thing in there about, like, blocking any litigation on it. And also, like, if any litigation does come up, um, dictating where, which court will hear that case, which is insane, um, and a truly insane thing for the federal government to sort of step in and decide. Mm. Yeah, lots of other details that we'll get into next week. But um, but it ain't good. It ain't good, folks. Yeah, I, and I have I'm, a lot of questions,
1: but I'll, yeah. I'll save them for next week. And of
0: course, this is being pegged to the the budget bill that is required to keep the government operating. So. That is unfortunate, but um, there's definitely, there's like, there's actually quite a few Democrats that are like, this is bullshit, including mm. um, Tim Kaine. That one really, I'm like, okay, I knew that, you know, because he's from oh, Virginia. Oh, I him. Yeah, like, because he's from Virginia, like, he might, because Mountain Valley Pipeline doesn't just impact West Virginia, Joe Manchin state, it also impacts Virginia. Um, and we But we hadn't really heard much from Tim Kaine on this, and he came out yesterday saying, like, I will fight this bill like every with like everything i have which i was like wow okay i mean because he's you know like he's not bernie sanders he's not bernie sanders you know (laughs) i remember
1: him running for vice president and being like okay wow yeah
0: yeah yeah so that seems like okay maybe maybe it won't be just the progressive wing of of the democratic party that that Mm -hmm. is like this is too much but we'll see we'll see and we'll get into more next week
1: yeah. I mean, my main question though is so is Joe Manchin still the world's climate hero?
0: <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. He's, That's not an answer. He is, <laughs> ugh, man. I just, every time I think, like, surely that he's done now. Nope. No, he's not. Uh, are you ready? <laughs> I'm ready. It's time to talk about climate. <laughs> And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with EarthBreeze and save 40%. 4-0, 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription earthbreeze.com slash drilled
1: Kate Marvel thank you so much for joining us
2: I'm so excited to be here thank you for having me yeah
1: We were really excited when you accepted the invitation. So, you know, when we talk about climate change, I I think so many people still think of it as a strictly science issue and that they can't talk about it unless they understand the science inside and out. So before we get into today's questions, I just wanted to ask you how you feel about that assumption about climate change as an actual astrophysicist.
2: So that seems like too much work for me personally, mm-hmm. um if I'm the only one who's allowed to talk about climate change, <laughs> yeah um, y- yeah, you know so so selfishly, like, I don't want to have to solve this problem by myself, but also, you know, climate change, you know, as you are super aware, is not just a scientific problem. Like I get so sick of seeing these headlines that are like scientists are worried about Greenland melting, and I'm like, what are, what's up with the rest of you <laughs> right Why are right you worried about this, <laughs> yeah. I think it's becoming increasingly not a scientific question. It's becoming increasingly a policy question. And, you know, people ask me all the time, like, what do you think of this policy or that policy? Or should I buy an EV or what should I do? And I'm like, I don't know. You know, I have... I have opinions as a citizen and they're kind of opinions that are informed by my job, Mm -hmm. but I'm not sure that I know more about what the right response kind of politically and morally and Mm. pragmatically. I'm not sure that I know more than than most other people.
1: Mm Yeah. Yeah.
2: So I'm actually, like, I'm really excited to be increasingly irrelevant. Um, That's all I ever wanted.
1: (laughs) Kate, you're never going to be irrelevant. So sorry to break it to you. I don't think that's going to happen. Oh, man. (laughs) But, yeah, we do have a ton of questions from our audience
0: for you. So, Amy, you want to kick us off with the first one? Yes. I Actually, I love this question because I also kind of have it. And it relates to your job as well, Kate. What... Does NASA have to do with climate
2: change? Why are we always hearing from NASA about it? Um, So NASA knows a lot about planets, and we live on one. So... Yes, You know, NASA (laughs) has done a lot of work looking out, sending up satellites and probes and various things to look out at the cosmos. And that's great. But we also look down. We send up satellites to look down at the Earth. And what we're seeing is really scientifically interesting, which is a great euphemism for terrifying. And it's really useful. So, you know, NASA is concerned and, you know, interested in studying climate change, because we can measure it from space um, and also because there are a lot of physicists working at NASA. There are a lot of chemists. There are a lot of people with scientific backgrounds. And the same physics that tells you things like why the Earth goes around the sun and you know why stars shine, that same physics tells you about why the Earth is changing.
1: Hmm. We got another question from Rolf, which is a little bit longer. When there's a large-scale melting of the ice caps or glaciers, could this have a temporary effect on creating cold weather in the air that gets shunted more than temperate zones in the winter, even though the ice and water are getting warmer in polar regions? Are there other cascading effects of melting actually warming the water?
2: That's a great question.
1: I'm so glad you understand it, because dog.
2: Well, the reason I love that question is it lets me do my favorite thing, which is complain about the movie The Day After Tomorrow. (laughs)
1: You mean the cult classic, the day after tomorrow, the one that galvanized the climate
0: conversation? You can't stay here. Get out of here!
2: What you're seeing are two actual tornadoes striking Los Angeles International Airport. Wait, wait, it looks like they joined and more one large tornado. I mean, so I, you know, take this with a grain of salt. I saw this movie years ago, and I may not have been in the best state of liquid refreshment, so I I don't know that I 100% am remembering it. But as far as I can remember, Dennis Quaid is the only scientist on Earth, despite the fact that he doesn't understand anything about thermodynamics. And he melts Antarctica by taking some ice core samples. And when that happens, the entire Earth is plunged into a deep freeze and Jake Gyllenhaal gets trapped in the library in New York City. (laughs) Yep. And they have to burn books to stay warm and the movie is, like, highly supportive of this choice. Like, yes, burning books will (laughs) save us. Uh. And um you know, I, I question that movie's decision to depict climate change as something kind of overnight and cold. Neither of those are, you know, that accurate. But you know, there's kind of a little grain of truth in that movie, which is that as the earth was getting warmer coming out of the last ice age, there was a little blip in the temperature. So it's getting warmer, it's getting warmer, it's getting warmer. And then all of a sudden, in geological terms, it starts getting colder. And the reason, we think, is that there was a big burst, basically, and some ice melted that put a lot of meltwater into the oceans. And that really affected the circulation of air in the atmosphere, water in the ocean. And that led to a pretty pronounced but temporary cooling. So that's an example of weird stuff that can happen on a rapidly warming planet. You know, Things that we do know are happening is the, a lot of the weather we experience, a lot of the climate we experience, is driven by the fact that there is a temperature difference between the tropics and the poles. So the poles are super cold, the tropics are super hot, and that sets up a lot of the atmospheric circulation that dictates our, you know, day-to-day weather and climate. And what's happening right now is the Arctic is getting warm a much faster rate than almost anywhere else. And so that is kind of flattening out that temperature difference and affecting the atmospheric circulation in a whole bunch of really strange ways.
0: Hmm. That's super interesting. So what Rolf is really asking is, like, could we potentially see a similar sort of temporary cooling as the glaciers melt in the years ahead?
2: You know, I I wouldn't say we're going to see something like the day after tomorrow. Um, What we are actually seeing is there's, there's pretty robust evidence in the summer for the fact that this gradient is weakening, it's doing things to the jet stream. And as a result, we are getting more pronounced and persistent heat waves because of, of you know, differences in, in atmospheric pressure. So that's something that's pretty robust. Um, in the winter, there's been some suggestions that the fact that the Arctic is warming faster than the tropics and the circulation is changing, that's making the jet stream less stable. That's making the jet stream more wobbly. And that's giving rise to cold air outbreaks, winter weather. That is not a obviously wrong theory. That's something that could be right. The evidence so far is not really accumulating to support that happening right now. But that is definitely something that is the focus of kind of active scientific study.
1: So I I selfishly have a question for you. I need to frame it with a little bit of contextual information. So last week my phone ran out of storage and I had to call Apple support to fix it. The day before that the sensors on my car got blocked and I had to take it to the dealership to find out that it was just a leaf on my on my you know car and that the car was fine and then this morning i restarted my computer and it refused to turn back on for 30 full minutes and all of this to say is that this particular instance of mercury in retrograde has been especially brutal and i feel personally victimized what is nasa doing to pull mercury out of retrograde and when can i expect restitution <laughs> i was really i was really wondering where you were going mary <laughs> This is important. Don't laugh. <laughs>
2: it's like, this is either going to be complaining about Mercury retrograde or complaining about Skynet, and I'm not sure which one it's going to be. I don't be. know what
1: Skynet is, and... but fuck it, too.
0: How often do you get complaints at NASA about Mercury and retrograde? I'm, like, do people write
2: in? We, 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 get, a lot of, we get a lot of complaints. Um, I get a lot of complaints about many, many things. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure... You want to be asking NASA to move planets.
1: Just out of retrograde. <laughs>
2: <laughs> open a can of worms. That, you know, you think climate change is bad. Just wait till you start messing with oh, gravity.
1: God. Oh, God. Oh, is that what retrograde is?
2: <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know what it means astrologically because I do not believe in astrology. But um,
1: oh, but you're an astrophysicist, though. Like, how does that work?
2: Uh Exactly. Oh, uh, you're gonna get me hate mail now for being cranky about astrology. <laughs> well, we should have said this at the
1: top of the episode, actually. We have just to remind our listeners, please send all hate mail to b K A H N at Protocol.com. <laughs> Care of Brian Kahn. He loves it.
2: All right. Thanks, Brian.
1: Um, so you're not doing anything to get Mercury out of retrograde, is what I'm hearing.
2: No, I mean you're gonna have to you're gonna have to deal with that yourself. I'm sorry. <laughs> Fuck.
1: I want my taxes back.
2: And I sh- I should say that um mostly I'm speaking as an individual. I do not represent any agency of the federal government, but I kind of feel comfortable speaking for NASA there when I say we're not going to do anything.
1: Okay. Fine. You're just going to take my tax dollars and leave me in tech hell. So, no worries.
0: Okay. Kate, we got a lot of questions about various technological fixes to climate change, as you might you know, not be surprised to hear. So one of them was from Rob regarding Moxie, a machine that turns CO2 into oxygen. I'm, I haven't seen this, but I don't know. Maybe you have.
2: Is it a tree?
0: (laughs) Uh, No, no, Kate. It's a machine. Maybe it's an artificial tree. Can you speak to its viability in reducing CO2 in Earth's atmosphere and whether or not efforts are currently being made to use this technology? Here on our home planet.
2: Yeah, I have not heard of that. You know, we do have plenty of technologies that turn CO2 into oxygen. So we've got trees, we've got kelp, we've got plants. Basically, like that's what photosynthesis does. And Trees are great. I love them. You know, defor or af- sorry, I was about to say deforestation is a climate solution. That is absolutely wrong. Um, <laughs> reforestation It's is is a climate solution, but it cannot be the only solution. It is just not possible to. Counter the enormous amount of CO two that humans are currently putting in the atmosphere by by building tree you know mm. by building trees by planting trees right <laughs> um, right and you know that's you know there there's several reasons for that you know trees are part of ecosystems they do many things other than just take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and. Trees take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, not because they're benevolent and they love us, but that's how they exist. That's what trees do to grow, Mm -hmm. is they use photosynthesis and they use carbon from the atmosphere to make more tree. And, you know, that's, that's great. That does take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. But... When you lose that tree, you lose that sequestration of CO2. So, you know, things like forest fires can wipe out enormous amounts of sequestration potential. Right, right. So, you know, I'm not like, I'm not anti-tree. Um, Kate you know, Marvel get, like, hates trees. I'm just kidding. i going to get so many like angry tweets. <laughs> Again, send them to Brian Kahn at Protocol. Right. <laughs> yeah you know like i'm I am pro tree, but you know we are not going to be able to to plant trees to to get ourselves out of this and and change nothing else you know in terms of artificial ways of taking co2 out of the atmosphere, those technologies exist. Some of them are proven to work. Um, the question is do they work at scale? From a scientific perspective, and then there's obviously a lot of you know going back to what we were talking about before that it's you cannot you cannot leave this up to scientists. Like scientists are not going to solve this problem because you know we're we're great, I love us, but <laughs> that's the, that's not really what we're for. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's there's problems associated with taking CO2 out of the atmosphere. There's too much CO2 from the perspective of temperature, but you know from the perspective of how many parts per million there actually isn't that much co2 in the atmosphere you know we're talking a little bit over 400 420 parts per million and that means that you need to figure out a way to separate out that really really small part of any given bit of air that is co2 that takes energy and you know that's that's going to be a problem as the stuff scales up and then you need to figure out what to do with it mm-hmm. so once you've got the co2 you need to figure out where am I where are we going to put this stuff so that it doesn't hurt anybody else. Yeah. And you know, that gets you into the domain of, of people and society and, and things that scientists are not experts in, even though you know, I, I live with people in a society. You know, I don't think I'm uniquely qualified to say here is the best balance between carbon dioxide removal. And um, other things, I don't feel like I'm qualified to say, here's how we should build this infrastructure to do this equitably. You know
0: who's also not qualified, but it's not stopping them, Kate? Oil companies. I'm just kidding. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I mean, one thing that I will say is, you know, there's sometimes a narrative that, oh, you can't talk about carbon dioxide removal because oil companies will lie about it and they'll use it to justify, you know, delay on climate action. And that argument actually doesn't work for me because oil companies literally lie about everything. Exactly. And they literally use everything to justify delay. Yeah. So, you know, I think you need to be aware of the environment that you're entering, um, the communications environment when you talk about this stuff but just the fact that oil companies will lie about this you know i i think you can't really let that stop you because yeah. they lie about everything yeah. yeah yeah the
1: environmental movement is really bad about letting the oil companies like control everything they say for fear of what they'll say back but like yeah <laughs> they're always gonna find the bad faith argument
0: yeah exactly um okay i found out i i looked up moxie
2: I'm here with Jim. He's going to teach us how to get oxygen on the surface of Mars. Jim, can you tell us where we are right now? Absolutely. This is the JPL Mars Oxygen In-Situ Resource Utilization Laboratory. We call this the MOXIE Lab for short. The MOXIE instrument is a demonstration mission designed to prove that we can produce pure oxygen on the surface of Mars. If it's successful...
0: It's part of NASA's preparation for human exploration of Mars. And it's like a small battery-sized thing that produces oxygen from CO2 in the same way that trees do. It's like this little unit that they have created. But right now it's very, very small and it's like, you know, it it wouldn't even be able to make enough oxygen for one human on Mars, let alone like, you know, be deployed at scale. But still, it's a technology and it exists and, and NASA's testing it out on Mars.
2: So there you go. Yeah. No. I mean, I. You can go to Mars. I do not want to. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I like it here. Um, Mars seems like it sucks. You know, no fun whatsoever. Um, but you know, like the problem with carbon dioxide removal isn't the technologies, right? It's it's the scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's, it's the questions of how do we do this? How do we do this quickly? Should we do this? Yeah. What do we do? You know, what do we do with the infrastructure? And, and those are all really important questions, but they're not questions that science is going to be able to provide you a yes or no answer for. Like science can definitely inform your decisions, but you know, we can't, we can't say yes or no. And we, so we certainly can't say this is all solved now. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Another fun fact: Mars is also in retrograde until January twelfth, twenty twenty three. And let me guess: Kate's not the not Kate specifically, but NASA's not doing shit about that either.
2: Does retrograde mean boring?
1: Um,
2: because that's what Mars is all the time. Wow!
1: Wow! Major Mars hate going on here.
0: Um, <laughs> Kate, I I have a question. What would it uh-huh. take to get you on a spaceship with Elon Musk to Mars?
2: Chocolate. <laughs> I'm betting chocolate. I don't even like chocolate. I mean, it's, <laughs> I'm so, it's
1: fine. I'm sorry, but, what?
2: <laughs> I mean, it's, it's fine. I don't like dislike chocolate, but certainly I am
0: deeply concerned. not enough
2: to spend three years on a spaceship to Mars with Elon Musk. <laughs> um,
0: Is there anything that would entice you to do
2: that? You know, if somebody said, like, this one thing will solve climate change, somehow, you know, according to some physics that nobody's understood before, if (laughs) Kate Marvel, and it has to be Kate Marvel, goes to Mars with Elon Musk, Mm -hmm. then the parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere will drop to pre industrial values. Don't question the science, it's just going to happen. Then I would do it. Or, you know, like, you know, world peace or whatever but um you know
1: can't have world peace without climate (laughs) yeah can't have one without the other yeah
2: yeah yeah Yeah. but i mean chocolate i mean no
1: okay outside of elon musk (laughs) though are you at all interested in going to space
2: um, oh, yeah. You know, I am I am really pro-human spaceflight if I get to do it. Mm. Um, otherwise, I'm kind of lukewarm about it. Mm-hmm. But no, I would love to see the Earth from space um, to, you know, get that blue marble view and, and be really moved about it and, Aww. like, have something to talk about at parties for the rest of my life. Mm. I would love that. Um, if anybody from NASA is listening, I've told you, please, I want to go.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: But um, and I'd go, I'd go to the moon. Um, I'd go to the moon because it's you know three days away and that seems manageable, like you know long weekend. Mm-hmm. But Mars Mars is too far, and it's it's just there's nothing there.
1: Yeah, every time I get in a plane, I think I'm gonna die. So y'all have fun with that shit. And we're gonna go to a break and come back with more questions. <laughs>
0: Support for a hot take comes from the Southern Environmental Law Center and its podcast, Broken Ground. In the latest season, listeners journey to Boxtown, Tennessee, a black neighborhood on the edge of Memphis, tucked into a bend of the Mississippi River. This community has a rich history and its residents cherish their deep ties to the land. Here, people young and old, hailing from all corners of the city and beyond, came together to fight the environmental injustices and threats to their quality of life posed by a controversial crude oil pipeline. In the course of telling this story, Broken Ground uncovers the stories of the community who pushed back against the project through grassroots organizing, legal advocacy, and unwavering determination. Find out how a crude oil pipeline went from imminent to canceled from the people on the front lines. Listen to their story in the latest season, now available wherever you get your podcasts, or stream it directly at brokengroundpodcast.org. Hot Take is brought to you by Sleep Me. Science tells us that the best way to achieve and maintain consistent deep sleep is by lowering core body temperature. Temperature-controlled sleep repairs muscle after a hard day's work and improves cognitive function, so you always start your day feeling sharp and alert. Sleep Me is the new home for chilly sleep, which you've heard us talk about before. Mary, I know you're a fan of sweating, but do you like to sweat yourself to sleep? Is that a thing for you?
1: (laughs) It's not something it's not something I aim for. No, I don't I don't sweat myself to sleep. No. Wait, you're making me really sound like a freak.
0: <laughs> I know. I know. I I like I'm I'm like um totally a, the person who like has the windows open and the fan on and like air conditioning if I have it cuz I love I like a cold um, a cold room and the sleep me option is great because I don't have to force you know anyone else to have the same cold room that I'm sleeping you in. basically <laughs> I like to sleep it myself you just want to sleep it on a board. <laughs> Yes, I really, I think I would love that. Very Honestly, morbid. I would. Morbid. Yes, yes. Um, sleep Me makes the coldest and most comfortable sleep systems. They have mattress pads that keep your body at the perfect temperature for a deep, cold sleep. They also have weighted blankets with a uh, cooling kind of option in them. And they just launched the new Doc Pro sleep system, which has two times more cold power than other models. It's super, super quiet, and it has a tubeless mattress pad design that allows for five times more cooling contact. I love it. I love to sleep cold, and it helps me get to sleep and stay asleep. Head over to sleep.me/ht to learn more and save twenty five percent off the purchase of any new Doc Pro cube or Uller sleep system this offer is available exclusively for hot take listeners and only for a limited time that's sleep s-e-l-e-e-p dot me m-e slash h-t to take advantage of our exclusive discount and wake up refreshed every day
1: okay this next question is from drew it says can making or repainting things white or deploying mirrors on Earth's surface practically reflect enough light and heat to make a difference in temperatures? Examples, roofs and pavements.
2: Great question. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer that question kind of more broadly um, and talk about sort of geoengineering and solar radiation management in general. So, you know, from a basic physical perspective, there's only two ways that you can make the earth cool down. You can uh, make more energy leave the earth or you can make less energy come in. And the way you would make less energy come in is you would block some sunlight. Um, that would otherwise reach the Earth's surface and, and warm us up. So there's been lots of different proposed ways to do this, um, you know, painting roofs white. You would have to paint a lot of surface white in order to make a difference in global temperatures. Local temperatures, you know, that's, that's a different story, but we're talking global temperatures here. You could do things like make clouds brighter over the ocean. We're already kind of inadvertently doing this. If you look from space, you can see um, the exhaust tracks of ships crisscrossing the oceans. It's because as ships sail, they spew out particulates, um, which seed clouds. So we could do that more deliberately, kind of making clouds um, that would block some sunlight over the ocean. Or we could do things like make artificial volcanoes. Um, So volcanoes cool the certain types of volcanoes cool the planet. Most recently in 1991, Mount Pinatubo went off and made it in that year about half a degree Celsius colder. We could do that deliberately. We could spray a bunch of stuff, basically sunblock in the stratosphere. And and all of those things would, I, you can't see my air quotes, all of those things <laughs> would work in air quotes, if all you care about is lowering the global average temperature, and it might be that things get so desperate that we need to do that. Um, so I'm not saying you know 100% in the future I will never ever see a need for for these technologies. You know it, it may be that you know this incredibly imperfect, janky thing. We have to do it because it is the The only thing that is going to to keep temperatures from rising catastrophically. The reason that it is imperfect and kind of janky is that it is a different thing heating up the planet by putting a bunch of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. That is not exactly balanced by blocking sunlight from coming in. That's going to do things to the water cycle. It's going to make rainfall patterns change in ways that we may not completely understand right now. It wouldn't do anything about the problem of ocean acidification, and in fact, it may even make it worse. And there's a lot of things on the planet that like sunlight, in, you know, including me, including plants, um, and and that might be a problem. So I think nobody or very few people, there, there's kind of the stereotype that, oh, you know, there's mad scientists working on this. And I'm not going to say there's no mad scientists. I will not say who those mad scientists might be, um, but um, especially Is on the record. It's, no, it's, I'm an angry scientist. There's a difference. Um, I, see, I see. But, you know, I, I think the vast majority of people looking into the implications of this just want to use models in order to understand the implications of this and use that to learn more about the climate system. So I think very, very few scientists are are cheerleading this. There's quite a few scientists who think, you know, well, if y'all don't cut emissions the way that we've been telling you to for decades, you know, this may be the only way we prevent global temperatures from reaching truly catastrophic levels um so it's worth understanding this it's worth doing the research but i don't think anybody is saying oh yeah problem solved let's just do this yeah.
0: yeah i actually interviewed the folks that were doing that um the cloud seeding experiment at harvard that then they were going to do it like out in the real world in sweden and then i think Various people were like, please, let's not. But they were really interesting because their whole um, thing was like, yeah, we're not excited about this. We just think like because the technology exists, one of these days some psychotic dictator is going to unleash it and we want to mm-hmm. know like what's going to happen. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? Yeah. Not not a bad assumption. Like, you know, yeah, I could see that too.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's that, you know, I think that really points to the kind of the asymmetry, you know, between climate change mitigation and a geoengineering solution is that, you know, a crazy dictator could definitely do this. Um, you know, a billionaire could definitely do this. And they're um, and all funding a lot
0: of this stuff, actually.
2: Yeah. And, you know, it's it's fairly comparatively cheap. So, you know, if you wanted to do this, you wouldn't need kind of global buy-in, and, you know, major changes in society the way that you need for effective mitigation. You know, effective mitigation, you really need to get lots of different countries on board, and, and that's that's difficult. Yeah. And so that's, that's kind of another area that really worries me. Yeah. Another thing that kind of freaks me out is that, you know, it's going to be really hard to attribute things, you know, so for example, suppose they, you know, somebody starts geoengineering, somebody starts, you know, putting stuff in the stratosphere or brightening clouds, and then a major typhoon hits Japan, for example, does it matter if you can prove this typhoon was caused by the, you know, geoengineering or not? And if there's ambiguity there, you know, that's kind of scary to me because that's going to dictate countries' responses, that's going to dictate how countries relate to each other and you know we're never going to be able to say oh this had no effect. Maybe it doesn't even matter. So that's that's another source of kind of uneasiness for yeah. me.
1: You mentioned volcanoes and I feel like volcanoes are often used to by like climate deniers to be like see it's not real or the climate models don't take into account volcanoes. I don't really understand their argument.
2: Do you? Wait, climate deniers don't make any sense? Is that what you're saying? I think I might be. What? Really? Yeah. Um, so- they're on my Twitter, Kate. <laughs>
0: there's, one, there's one, like, new volcano that they all seem to be talking about, and I can't remember the name of it, but, like, yeah. It, it's like every few years there's another one that they're like, oh, the models don't know about this.
2: So, I mean, volcanoes kind of – volcanoes do two things. So if you've got – a really large explosive volcano that's located in the tropics in a region that's really favorable to, you know, getting this stuff up in the stratosphere and smearing it around on the entire global stratosphere, um, like Pinatubo, like El Chichon and Mount Agung before that, like Krakatoa, the really famous expo- explosion in the late 1800s. Um, those we know are really effective at cooling the climate. And that's, that's really temporary, but it's, it's a large effect. You know, a lot of times you get, well, volcanoes produce CO2, didn't you know? And like, yes, volcanoes produce CO2, less than 1% of what humans do. But like, yes, CO2 comes out of volcanoes. And, you know, there's a, there's a carbon cycle. There's a carbon cycle dictated by biological stuff, you know, photosynthesis and stuff eating the results of photosynthesis and dying and putting their carbon back. So there's kind of that short carbon cycle. And then there's a really, really, really long carbon cycle where volcanoes belch CO2 into the atmosphere over geological timescales. And then that is removed from the atmosphere by rock weathering. And so that takes place over, you know, millions of years. Really, really, really long timescales. You know, we know that volcanoes can you know, over geological timescales, put a bunch of CO two in the atmosphere. It's what happened in uh, at various times in in the Earth's history, and we generally see like large scale extinctions. You know, big climate changes. That's one of the reasons we know putting CO two in the atmosphere makes it hotter and changes the climate. But on uh, the timescales we're talking about, volcanoes do almost nothing. And you know, I work with kind of some of the experts in here's what volcanic eruptions do to the climate. I'm working on some of those questions myself. And so I get kind of, I get offended when people say that climate scientists don't know about volcanoes Mm -hmm. because we know a lot about volcanoes.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. From Maya in Brooklyn, she says, growing up in the 90s, acid rain was concerning enough to teach elementary schoolers about it. Is this Mm -hmm. still a thing? Whatever happened to acid rain, Kate? (laughs) And the Bermuda Triangle, I might
1: add. (laughs) I remember thinking the Bermuda Triangle was going to be a very big part of my life, and quicksand. Yes, I watched. uh, (laughs) What was it, Ducktales? Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: Was that the one where Baloo was like a float plane pilot? No, that (laughs) was was, that
1: that was Tailspin. Ducktales was the one with the ducks.
2: Mm-hmm. okay yeah i want to be in that pitch meeting for somebody who's like all right it's Baloo from the jungle book but he's a cargo pilot like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the kids will love it and we <laughs> did
1: we did they had a great theme song but you're stalling what happened to acid rain kate did you disappear it like you did pluto well clean air legislation. So,
2: you know, after World War II, um, you saw massive increases associated with industrialization of pollutants into the atmosphere, things like uh, nitrous oxide compounds and uh, sulfur dioxide And both of those things come from burning fossil fuels. Burning coal puts a lot of this stuff in the atmosphere. And you can actually see that in global temperatures. There's a a little bit of a global dimming happening from about the, the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, And temperatures don't rise as fast as they would have if you hadn't had that stuff in the atmosphere. Because basically, North America and Western Europe put so much stuff in the atmosphere, so much of this pollution in the atmosphere, that it effectively blocked the sun and and made it colder. Um, But that also, sulfur dioxide, also contributes to acid rain. Um, And so the... The concerns that you were hearing about in the 90s about acid rain was tied to the increase in what we call aerosols, the sulfur dioxide, nitrous oxide, a whole bunch of, you know, basically dirt um, and soot and pollution that power plants were belching into the atmosphere. In the U.S. and Western Europe, in the U.S. we had the Clean Air Act and then the update to the Clean Air Act in 1990. In Western Europe, there was clean air legislation as well. And, you know, that wasn't perfect. You know, no legislation is generally, uh, did not solve all the problems, but it did have a major impact. So the Clean Air Act and associated legislation did clean up a lot of the sulfur dioxide pollution. And so we saw a decrease in atmospheric aerosols. We saw a decrease not evenly concentrated in aerosol pollution. And we saw a decrease in that kind of sun blocking effect of aerosols. And most importantly, we saw a decrease in the incidence of acid rain. And so it's, you know, I I don't want to make it into a really simplistic, happy, everything's fine now story. Um, But I think it is a story of how concerted effort and policy and legislation really can have Mm, impacts.
1: Follow up question. In August 2006, the scientific community removed Pluto as a planet. What did Pluto know and when did it know it? (laughs)
2: Um.
0: i'm actually waiting on an answer
2: (laughs) (laughs) i'm i'm not at liberty to discuss this
1: oh okay okay we'll ask you again offline (laughs) All right. So follow-up question, actually, from Maya in Brooklyn. Will climate change increase the number of pandemics we see? Are there particular diseases or viruses folks are expecting to emerge? And what can we expect to see over the next few decades?
2: Um, This is not my particular area of expertise. You know, there is... Things get weird when you change the climate. Things get weird when you warm the world up. You get species migrating in very strange ways. You get viruses emerging in strange places you know, you get mosquitoes able to live for longer and to live in places where they weren't able to live before. So all of this is happening. All of this is concerning. As far as specifics go, that's not really my area of expertise. But I know that there has been quite a lot of research published on the you know, different pathogens in a warming world. And it's an area of concern.
1: Yeah, I'm really concerned about that permafrost, you know?
0: We don't really know what's Uh, in there. Some anthrax. Um. Oh, I'm
1: sorry. I'm sorry. I was thinking of, you know, things like, you know, Triceratops flu or some shit.
0: Oh, yeah, there is. There's, like, old dead animals and lots of, like, lots of random pathogens.
2: So Yeah. yeah. How has has nobody made that zombie movie yet? How
0: has that not been made? I mean, that seems like a slam dunk for... For like a Hollywood See, version of this,
2: right?
1: This is the right? shit. Call me Netflix. This is the shit I'm thinking <laughs> about when I'm working out. You know, like when the prehistoric zombies get here, I want to be able to call to haul ass and I don't want to be pulling a hammy. So, it's
0: true. It's yeah. true. You got to be in apocalypse shape. Yep. Okay. From Kelly, who's a math teacher. I like this question. This is fun. She says she teaches these classes as teaching how to think in systems, and she relates everything to climate, but she says, how could we make this more system-wide? I'm not sure what she means by this except sort of like understanding climate in general. And is anyone doing the work or restructuring education toward a fossil fuel-free future and will they hire me? I, I don't expect you to know all of the answers to that, Kate. But yeah, I'm curious about what you think about how kids are learning about um, climate to the extent that any of them are, because I think, you know, I know the last time I looked at this, it was something like um, half of U.S. schools never mentioned the word um, K through 12. So um, so yeah, like how how would you like to see kids learning about this stuff?
2: I mean, I would love to see, you know, going back to your very first question about science versus other areas of knowledge, I would like to see science and math not compartmentalized. Um, You know, right now, you kind of take your math class, and you take your science class, and you take your English class. And, And I teach right now, I teach at Columbia, and I've got You know, people showing up in my master's program saying, oh, I'm not a math person. and You know, I'm like, well, you are now. (laughs) But, you know, our education system just kind of allows people to believe this false story about themselves that you know quantitative knowledge or the tools of science are are not for me mm-hmm. i am interested in people i am interested in storytelling i am interested in art and therefore i can't be interested in in these tools and i think that's silly you don't need to be a like full-fledged french person to know that french exists as a language and it's it's useful for communicating in some you know, in some situations. And I feel the same way about math and science and, and physics, that, you know, you don't need to be a professional physicist to know that these tools are available and they're useful in some situations. Um so I would love to see less disciplinary boundaries. You know, a lot of times people ask me, you know, should I focus on being a better communicator or should I focus on you know, learning the science. Um, and I kind of feel like, well, you have to do both. And that's hard, but climate change is hard. You know, that that that's kind of my feeling. And I, I, I'm really sympathetic to people who don't see themselves as science people or as math people. But I think a lot of that is you secretly are, you've just never been taught that in, in, in the right way. Yeah. So um, what was the name of the person who asked the question? Kelly. Thank you, Kelly. Like, Thank you for thinking about this. Thank you for teaching your students in this way. I wish I had you as a math teacher. Yeah. I wouldn't have wasted so much time hating math and thinking it wasn't for me. So it's, it sounds like you've got a, a great start. And I hope that you and I and all the other people who are thinking about teaching in this context can can get together and can figure this out.
1: Let's go to an ad break. Hot Take is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Our partner has a product that I use literally every day, first thing in the morning. Um, It is um, this little green powder. You put it into some water, and you drink it. And it can replace your coffee, or you can drink it alongside your coffee, just like double fist it, like I do, um, because it has all sorts of vitamins and probiotics and vegan collagen to keep your skin looking good. In it, um, I know, Amy, you have your own experience with AG One, right?
0: I do. I um, I like it. I use the powder in smoothies to kind of, I don't know, it helps me wake up in the morning. Mm. But I also really love their vitamin D drops. They, um, I swear they help me, like, not get sick. If I feel like I'm feeling run down, I totally um, grab those. And they – maybe, who knows? I don't know if what kind of science is working there. All I know is it keeps me from getting sick, so I love it.
1: Hey, we're not scientists on this show. We're very clear about that. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. All the things. The aging part is really what drove me in because that's that's my language right there. Um, yeah, <laughs> My skincare <laughs> situation is not a game. Athletic Greens was created when the founder experienced a ton of gut health issues and ended up on a complicated supplement routine to recover. It cost him $100 a day. That's deep. Um, Wow. Yeah, seriously. Um, Oof. Yeah, he created Athletic Greens after experiencing how difficult and expensive it was to create an optimal nutrition routine on your own. Also, for every purchase, we donate to organizations helping to get nutritious food to kids in need, including No Kid Hungry here in the United States. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one year supply of immune supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com/slash hot take. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash hot take to take ownership over your health and pick the ultimate daily nutritional insurance.
0: Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Mary. We need a lot of therapy around here. Yeah. Am I right? Yeah, we Am do. I right? <laughs> yeah, we do. Oh, it's true. It's like a massage for your mental health. Um, I would argue and- it's a little more essential than a massage. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. You know, it's, it's uh, more like, yeah.
1: you know, going to the dentist when you have a cavity. And we all are deeply traumatized these days.
0: Yeah, I know. Honestly, like between the pandemic every the constant cycle of crises that we're you know witnessing and experiencing right now climate um, change the, yeah that's what i mean yeah. by crises uh, uh, <laughs> I- yeah and then also like the um all of the political outrage cycle too i just feel like everyone is is like on high anxiety mode right now like seriously and, uh, or depressed mode oof. right like shit is real yeah shit is yeah real. it's it is real real um If you're not already in therapy, why not? Yeah. (laughs) Check out BetterHelp. It actually, it just makes it so easy. You can um, be really picky about exactly what type of therapist you want because you can choose from lots of different options. Um, You can book calls with them, book video calls. You can also just... Send them notes when you have the time. That's my favorite. Mm -hmm. Middle of the night. You know what? Some people write in their journal. I write to my therapist. I don't know if he loves it or not, but I do it. (laughs) It's so fast. Like, you, you get matched with someone within about 48 hours. You can, you know, have your first meeting with them fairly quickly after that. If you don't like them, it's super easy to change and you don't have to have a weird interaction with them. You just tell BetterHelp. Yeah. And then they're like, okay, like what didn't work? What would you like? It's very, it makes the whole thing very, very easy. And it's like way, 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 way cheaper than the average therapy too. So With that, visit BetterHelp.com slash Hot Take today, and you get another 10% off that low price. So 10% off your first month at BetterHelp. That's H-E-L-P.com slash Hot Take. Okay, so from Catherine in Canada, but this definitely applies in the U.S. too. Um, Can transitioning to hydrogen for some energy needs actually decrease emissions? She goes on to explain, she says, in Canada, our government has a hydrogen strategy. It includes injecting hydrogen into gas distribution pipelines so that it can be used for heating and also plans for hydrogen-powered vehicles and heavy-duty trucks. It lists Suncor as a partner in these plans very suspicious. There are graphs in the strategy that show emissions reductions from this transition. Is this greenwashing? Would love to hear your thoughts on where different uses for hydrogen fall on the real solutions slash false solutions spectrum. And then she says, shouldn't the focus be more on point of use efficiency and reducing energy needs overall rather than just transitioning fuels? There's a lot of questions in there. I think um, on hydrogen, there's a lot like... There's a lot of different things people could be talking about when they talk about hydrogen. And a lot of times it's just, like, capturing hydrogen from um, natural gas emissions, in which case, like, you know, it often is used as a justification for continuing gas, which doesn't necessarily mean it's, you know, not worth doing as long as we have gas. But anyway, I just – I feel like um, it's hard to just lump all things hydrogen into one.
2: Yeah, like – I have no problem with hydrogen as like an element. It's a great element. You know, one of the first produced by the universe, really simple. But, you know, I think I think you're right that um, thinking about the place of hydrogen in a decarbonization strategy, that's kind of above my pay grade. What I will say is that hydrogen has to be made, usually. You know, you have to take water or something else containing hydrogen and strip off the hydrogen, and that takes energy. And you can do that using electrolysis, um, which you can use electricity to do. Um, And so that, I think, is green hydrogen. I I, I get confused by the, the spectrum of colors. And, you know, that is arguably you know, oh, that's using green electricity that could have been used to do something else. So you could complain about it from that perspective. But, you know, for the things which require hydrogen um, or the things that can be most easily decarbonized using hydrogen, that's the way to do it. You know, most hydrogen right now is made using, you know, as using natural gas or what are we supposed to call natural gas now to make it sound as bad as it is? Fossil gas, or fossil
0: gas, or methane gas? I don't know. Bad, bad gas. That
2: stuff. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, smelly and, um, gas. No. <laughs> mean gas. Stupid gas. Whatever. But um, yeah. you know that's that's not great. And you know so considering how that hydrogen is made is is really important and being able to, to track how that hydrogen is made is important. You know, the, it's, it's not going to be a simple, a lot of times the kind of naive, very simplistic caricature of hydrogen is, oh, it's going to allow everything to continue on as is, we're just going to slot in hydrogen for, for methane. So, you know, the infrastructure that is used for methane gas right now, we'll just keep all of that. Nothing will change except hydrogen is going to be flowing through those pipelines. And there's various reasons why that is not going to work. But I, I don't think very many people in good faith are, are saying that's going to happen. Now, there's, there's a lot of people in bad faith saying that that is going to happen. But I think, you know, writing off, seeing the word hydrogen and saying immediately false solution, I think is, is a little going a little too far.
1: We've got another meaty question from Lyell. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Lyell says, I'm a middle school science teacher and longtime climate activist in Israel, where unfortunately we still have a significant number of climate deniers and skeptics. My question to the marvelous Dr. Marvel is about one of the most commonly touted claims of deniers that I hear. What's the end all scientifically backed proof that the Earth's heating is anthropo? anthropogenic, which I can't pronounce, and not due to an unusual increase in solar forcing that goes beyond that of the expected 11-year cycle. Thanks for all the great work you're doing for keeping this a livable and fair planet.
2: Oh, thank you. Um, you know, there there's so much evidence that the planet is heating up. So there's not really one smoking gun because you don't need one smoking gun when you've got, I don't know, why do we have to use military metaphors, there's like an entire arsenal. Um, (laughs) Yeah. You know, but I I would say the one of the really, really, really clearest signs that it's carbon dioxide heating up the planet and not the sun, besides the fact that NASA knows about the sun um, and is keeping an eye on it. And if the sun was suddenly getting a lot more powerful, like somebody at NASA would have noticed. (laughs) But beyond that, the the, the surface of the planet is getting hotter. Um, The troposphere, which is the, the part of the atmosphere where all the weather happens, that's getting hotter. But if you look in the stratosphere, the stratosphere is getting colder. And that wouldn't be happening if the sun were getting hotter. So if the sun were getting more intense, the entire atmosphere, including the stratosphere, would get hotter. But it, the physics of carbon dioxide basically say that if it's getting hotter because there's a bunch of carbon dioxide, the troposphere and the surface should be getting hotter and the stratosphere should be getting colder. Both those things are happening and there is no other explanation other than there's a bunch of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere.
0: Well, that takes care there of that. You go like it. <laughs> awesome. Okay, last question from our listeners is from Sam who asked, "Do you all prepare for extreme weather events? Are you preppers? Am I crazy or wasting my money to do this?" And uh I'll, like, do you guys have go bags and um
1: Absolutely. I have several. <laughs> I live in New yeah. Orleans. <laughs> I have one. No, not kidding. I have one at the foot of my stairs and I have one in the car and just several emergency supplies littered throughout the house um, and at my mother's house too, because we live in climate sacrifice zones and everybody around me does this. So the question of are you crazy? Absolutely not. Are you wasting your money? No. And I know this question was sent in for Kate and I just co-opted it, but I just want to say there is a difference between prepping and hoarding. So if you're hoarding supplies, you know, kind of like in the way that people were doing at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, that's one thing. And that gets into issues of equity and privilege and all of those sorts of things. And once you have those supplies, are you willing to share them? Um, so that's that's one thing. That's called being a jackass. But if you're just making sure that you're ready for a disaster that is likely to come because this is the world that we live in now, no, that's not at all. And like I stock up on things so that in the event that disaster strikes, which is you know quite likely where I live, I can share them with other people around me. And so, yeah, no, you're you're not crazy, you're not wasting your money.
2: I I agree with all of that. I think that there's a difference between being prepared and being a prepper. So, you know, I I have a go bag and, you know, I think everybody should. It's just kind of a sensible, useful thing to do. You know, I but I think that there's a difference between being prepared and being a prepper. I think you know, kind of the cultural narrative around prepping is, oh, society is going to collapse, and so you're going to have to be a rugged man, hoarding all the food and shooting everybody who tries to steal it. Um, And I don't find that to be a very fun fantasy to indulge. Like I don't want to do that role playing. Um, I definitely don't want to live in that world. And I think it's, it's better to expend effort thinking about how do we make society more resilient? How do we make society more fair? How do we make it so that there aren't sacrifice zones? And um, that is, I think, a better use of my time than, you know, Preparing wilderness survival skills to live in some like weird hypothetical future where you know society breaks down and somehow I'm still alive and also somehow in the woods. I don't know how I'm going to get to the woods um, and, and have to and shoot people. I mean that 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 doesn't sound fun. That doesn't sound like a world that I want to prepare for. Um, and I'd rather spend all of my time and energy trying to make this world better. Yeah.
1: yeah. Hey, what about you, Amy? I know the answer
0: yes I, I definitely I mean I I actually like I'm in the process of sort of prepping different bags because I had I had like a I had my my um fire evacuation game on lock but now I live more in like a flood area so yeah I'm um I'm you know kind of figuring to out adjust, yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm figuring out what I need here but yeah of course like you know I, I'm always like okay if I had to leave with, because I also I have little kids, I have pets. Like you know, you know, like shoving Baloo into your car to go is a whole thing too, right? <laughs> Baloo's <laughs> a like, cat. <laughs> Baloo's my cat. cat. For folks who don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, I'm kind of like, oh, like I like just the other day, I was like, oh, I should really have extra, you know, food for the animals on hand too, in case we have to like grab and and go. But um, but I agree, Kate, that yeah. That's that's just like the world we live in. I definitely don't want to spend time preparing for like, you know, permanent wilderness survival.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'll say like, not only do I have go bags, I have used them right like that i yeah same same. if all of a sudden you get that tornado warning on your phone you don't have time to go hunt and peck around your house to find your flashlight and your water and all of that stuff you need it in one spot because you need to get to low ground and get there very fast so you know no it's wonder where the person where sam lives you know like maybe they're not having climate disasters that often in in their area but you know nowhere is safe and it's better Better to you know have your stuff together literally. Well,
0: yeah, because also if you if you're trying to buy that stuff in the midst of a disaster, you're gonna be out of luck too. So Yeah.
2: Yeah, and I think you know that doesn't that doesn't make you a prepper. Yeah. That yeah. doesn't make you a doomer. That right. just makes you like a sensible person. Right. And I think it's totally possible to both, you know, take reasonable precautions that you will almost certainly have to use in the event of a disaster um, and at the same time not abandon vast swaths of the world to inevitable disasters.
0: Yeah,
1: exactly. It's all about adaptation and mitigation, right? Like prepping, (laughs) preparing for disasters is adaptation, but also you kind of don't want to let the disasters get worse because then you're just, you're not adapting. You can't adapt to chaos. Exactly. Yep. You should prepare and also help your neighbors prepare and
2: yes. factor in other
1: people in your and your preparedness plans.
0: Well that's like a more resilient prepare like, you know, plan anyway, right? Like it's mm-hmm. it's better to do it with community for exactly. everyone. Yeah. That sounds like a slogan for something else, but
1: I was gonna say <laughs> prepare <laughs> Prepare and prepare to share. How's that? <laughs>
0: That's great, Mary. That's much Thank you. more wholesome. Thank you, you saved so much.
1: It. Um Okay, actual last question, though. So, octopuses can shapeshift to mimic other animals and things like coconuts. They can walk on dry ground and turn keys. They can play psychological tricks on other animals. Why is the scientific community silent about the aliens that live among us, Kate?
2: They are absolutely not. There are, like, whole books about how octopuses are aliens. (laughs) (laughs) From scientists? Have you... Do you know any neuroscientists? Like, they literally never shut up about octopuses. Really? Um, Like, the scientific community is obsessed with octopuses because they are an example of an intelligence which is undeniable. Like, octopuses are extremely intelligent. Can they play chess? And their intelligence is... Their intelligence is so different from ours. Hmm. So I imagine that if an octopus wanted to play chess, it probably would be able to, but they do not want to because chess is incredibly boring mm -hmm. and doesn't help you, you know, escape sharks or whatever. But no, like neuroscientists are obsessed with octopuses. Octopi? Octopi. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Non-human intelligences.
0: Well, seems like a great place to leave it. (laughs)
2: awesome <laughs> the
0: octopi will have us in the end amazing <laughs> yeah awesome thank you so much kate we so appreciate you coming on all right
2: thank you so
0: much have a good
1: you. One. hot take is a crooked media production
2: it's produced by
0: ray pang and mixed and edited by jules bradley our music is by Vasilis photopoulos Thamali Kodakara is our consulting producer. And our executive producers are Mary Anais Heigler, Michael Martinez, and me, Amy Westervelt. Special
1: thanks to Sandy Gerard, Ari Schwartz, Kyle Seglin, and Charlotte Landis for production support, and to Amelia Montooth for digital support.
0: You can follow the show on Twitter, at RealHottake, Sign up for our newsletter at hottakepod.com, and subscribe to Crooked Media's video channel at youtube.com slash
2: crookedmedia.